I've had an astonishing experience uh, just going to see the movie Chappaquiddick, diving into it and diving deep into a Darwinian, Nietzschean, Hegelian, heart of darkness, will to power challenge to my very core. And I'm telling you, I'm this close to the religious faith of my youth for reasons that I will get into. So this is going to be a little bit about Chappaquiddick uh, and the movie. It's going to be a little bit more about Chappaquiddick, the actual uh, incident. And um, let us uh, let us dive in. It's powerful, powerful stuff for me. So everybody knows the Kennedys. There was this Joe Kennedy who made his fortune, family fortunes, in pretty unsavory ways, though I guess not for libertarians. And he had a bunch of sons. Uh, one, I think, died uh, in, uh, in, in wartime. There was John F. Kennedy, of course, shot uh, in Dallas. There was Robert Kennedy shot. Uh, and then there was a Ted Kennedy was the last of the surviving brothers. And he had presidential ambitions, I guess. The toothy fascism of the Kennedys was this giant wave that uh, was, I guess, that generation's Clintons, though, perhaps with uh, slightly fewer bodies. I mean, Kennedy never had to work a day in his life. He um, never had a real job. And he, like a lot of leftists, he spent his entire life telling other hardworking people at the point of a gun how they should spend their money, which we'll get into later. But I mean, he was raised in privilege, went to the usual exclusive boarding prep schools, went on to Harvard, but ended up being expelled from Harvard because he persuaded another undergraduate to take his Spanish exams for him bit of a warning to the voters, but hey, you know, if you're willing to give free stuff to voters, well, they'll let you, maybe they won't let you get away with murder, but it seems they'll let you get away with manslaughter, which we'll, we'll get into. Now, remember all the Roy Moore stuff? Oh, 16-year-old girl, 17-year-old girl, 18-year-old girl, whatever it was. Well, Kennedy was a drunk for a good portion of his life, and certainly for a good portion of his career in the Senate, could reek and drunk. He reeked of drink at nine o'clock in the morning, bawling, roaring drunk at four o'clock in the afternoon. In one of Washington's top restaurants, Ted Kennedy once threw a waitress over a table in a private room and tried to mount her and have sex with her. There's a congressional aide who was 16, told of being propositioned by Kennedy from the back seat of his limousine in Capitol Hill. She said that she testified that Ted Kennedy leaned out of the window, waved a wine bottle, and asked whether she or a friend she was with wanted to join him. Because, you know, it's terrible. I mean, it is terrible. That is awful, appalling behavior. He's married, I assume so. Now, we'll get to Chappaquiddick, but uh, just to skip over it for a sec, um, William Kennedy Smith, I assume that's uh, the reference from the Tragically Hip song, football Kennedy style. There, one of the Kennedys was accused of date rape in, in 1991. So the Kennedy clan, the Kennedy men, gathered at the family's Winter Beach house in Florida. And this William Kennedy Smith, who was Ted's nephew, was accused of taking a young woman named Patricia Bauman on the beach late at night and forcing her to have sex against her will. There was a big complicated defense, which takes the kinds of OJ expensive lawyers that the Kennedys can afford. He was found not guilty because he said it was rough but consensual sex. And Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, like a kraken, like a beast from the depths, like a, a satyr, arises, like emerges in this uh, trial. Uh, witnesses testified that Ted Kennedy was lounging around in his boxer shorts as his nephew coaxed the young woman onto the beach and did nothing to intervene the rough sex slash date rape, as she claimed. 
And Kennedy was, had woken the younger men in his party and insisted they go out to a nightclub to hunt for women. So uh, the man was a vile pig at uh, just about every conceivable dimension. And just to point it out about the movie, it is quite fascinating to see how hard it is to bring democratic scandals and criticisms to the big screen. Again, it's just part of the whole leftist Democrat bias in Hollywood. I mean, George W. Bush, uh, man, since his election in 2000, there's a whole bunch of movies that came out pretty negative. There was W, uh, Recount, Fair Game, Truth, Fahrenheit, 9-11. So, yeah, it's quite a lot of stuff about the Bushes. Uh, not, no movie about former President Bill Clinton's impeachment, the incredible rake accusations against him, his affair with Monica Lewinsky. No movie about Democrat FDR's internment of the Japanese. <sighs> no movies about... Lyndon Johnson's horrifying mishandling of the Vietnam War. And, I don't know, uh, how about Woodrow Wilson, who was a racist and pretty close to fascism, lied America into World War I and tried almost single-handedly to destroy the First Amendment. So this just shows you that it's real hard to get stuff critical of leftists uh, or Democrats onto the big screen, so kudos to the movies. Uh, to the movie makers for for doing that. And it is a good film. You should go and see the film. It is like a weird alien fly-on-the-wall documentary into an amoral universe called hell itself. And it's well, well worth watching. So we'll talk a little bit about Chappaquiddick that occurred in 1969. And uh, it's a horrifying series of events. You can tell, of course, when you have a pro-Kennedy or pro-Democrat, which I guess at the time was pretty similar, kind of reporter. They'll always refer to it as a tragedy, and they'll always reference his dead brothers and all that kind of stuff. But let's go over some of the basics, because that's important and a powerful story about life in an amoral universe with no God, no conscience. Uh, it is a terrifying universe, and one I do not know how to rescue the world from without God. So this is part of the glow that surrounds me at the moment, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in all that. So there was a party on Chappaquiddick, which is a small island off Edgartown in, in Massachusetts. I think it's pretty near Martha's Vineyard. And on this island, there was a rented cottage, and there's a party. And the party has six unmarried, hot young women, and six, I think they were all married, married men. And there was a cookout, and there was drinks, and everybody slept over. Come on! You don't have to be Mike Pence to understand that that's a weird situation. Why are all these married men going to a sleepover party with drinks with six hot, young, unmarried girls? <sighs> well, this is the amoral universe uh, of satisfy your physical lusts, whatever they manifested. Kennedy's cousin, Joseph A. Gargan, he shows up a lot in the movie. He was at this party and he stated that all those at the party were a little bombed, he said, except for Ray LaRosa. So Kennedy, as socialists generally do, spent his day at a regatta sailing his yacht and, and trying to win a race. He didn't. And so he shows up at the party, and long story short, he, had a, like, he doesn't drive himself much, right? His, his license had actually expired. So there was a driver. He had a driver, a chauffeur at the party. Now, what happened was, according to Kennedy... 
that this woman, Mary Jo Kopechny, she came to him and she said, I'm not feeling well. Can you drive me back to my hotel? Or if you're going anyway, can you whatever, right? So Kennedy has a driver. Why don't you get in the car with the driver and drive on back if you want to help this young woman out? Oh, there were other people she could have found. Now, Kennedy says, oh, my Crimmins, I think his name was, my, my chauffeur, well, he was still eating, so I didn't want to disturb him, so I just figured out, well, I'll drive back. Okay, well, fine. So no one saw them leave. She didn't tell her friends she was going anywhere, which is kind of weird, right? I mean, you go, you're having a reunion with your friends. You haven't seen them in a long time. You were involved in, I think they were involved in RFK's aborted presidential bid, and they were doing all this uh, research. She helped write some speeches about a smart girl, for sure. But you're there at a reunion, and you don't even say to your friends, I'm leaving, I'm going, bye-bye, nothing. Just, they both just vanished, right? Kennedy didn't say where he was going, Ted Kennedy, and Mary Jo Kopechny didn't say where she was going. So around 11.15 p.m., according to Kennedy, he drives her, they're going to go and get the ferry, which stops running at midnight, the ferry back across. It's a very, very narrow channel of water between Chappaquiddick and Edgartown. So around 11.15 p.m., he's going to drive her back to her hotel, except Mary Jo Kopechny left three things behind, well, two behind and one unknown, parts unknown. She left her pocketbook, kind of like her purse, and her hotel key behind. So if you're going back to your hotel and you leave your purse and your hotel key behind, that seems a bit odd. And she also left her panties somewhere uh, when she was found and recovered. The next morning, she was wearing no panties. So, according to the story, Kennedy's story, 11.15 p.m., they both vanish like they're beamed up. He doesn't have his driver. He's driving on an expired license, and he's probably drunk, or at least under the influence. Of course, he'd been drinking a regatta and drinking at night and so on, right? Everybody was a little bombed, according to the witness, right? So he would be a little bombed. So he's driving under the influence. Come on, let's be honest about that. So Kennedy drives Mary Jo Kopechny into the darkness. They've got to go get the, fer- get the ferry, which stops in 45 minutes. Now, of course, the movie, Chappaquiddick, the whole question of was she having an affair or was it just uh, whatever, right? So Chappaquiddick, the movie, has you believe that they just, they sit and have long philosophical chats. You know, as you do when you leave a party and you're half drunk and the woman has no panties, you just go and you discuss all of the vaunted ambitions that you have in your life and the challenges and the (laughs) crazy. She was 28. I think he was 37. Now, things get kind of muddled here. Now, remember, way before GPSs, way before cell phones, like if there aren't eyewitnesses, then more than one usually, it's pretty hard to figure out what the hell's going on with people. So, they say they left the party to go catch the ferry, which is, it's a mile, or it's nowhere. They could have been there in a few few minutes. And Kennedy knows the island. He's driven it before. Uh, she's, she's been on it before. I mean, even that day, they went back and forth a couple of times. So, 11.15 p.m., they leave the party to drive a mile to get to a ferry. So, a cop sees their car, sees Ted Kennedy's car with her, Mary Jo Kopechny, in it at 12.45 a.m. on the island of Chappaquiddick, an hour and a half after 
they say, they left because she was unwell and needed to, desperately needed to get back to her hotel room. Come on. This is not brain surgery. This is not brain surgery. So the cop sees them and says, are you having car trouble? Are you lost? Or something like that. This is in the movie. 12.45 a.m. The car peels off. Why? Because you're Ted Kennedy. You're driving. You're drunk. You're in a car with a girl who's not your wife, who's a hot young thing with no panties on. Your license has expired, and it's the middle of the night. So you don't want to be caught by the cop. Remember, this is pre-Clinton. And so uh, Kennedy's Catholic, Catholic votes, infidelity. This is not good. This is not good. So now Kennedy is driving down the road, and there's a T or a fork in the road. And it's clearly marked ferry. And to the left, I think it is, you, you go on a paved road to get to the ferry. To the right, you go on this bumpy, unpaved road down to an abandoned beach. So she, Mary Jo and Ted, had separately traveled along that beach road several times earlier that same day. So this was not particularly uh, an unknown area. So he takes a wrong turn and he's barreling down the dirt road. Freaking out, I assume. And then what happens is at the end of the road, to get to the abandoned beach, there's a left and there's a bridge. So if you go straight, you go off the bridge and into the water. And there's no guardrail. Now, experts have estimated that the car, the 20 mile an hour zone, the car was going well north of 30 kilometers an hour. So 20 miles an hour, it was going well north of 30 miles an hour. Some estimates are as high as 35 miles an hour. The brakes hit right at the end. And the car goes off the bridge. And it lands on the passenger side, hard, as you can imagine. It's a big Oldsmobile, hard, hard car. Mary Jo Kopechny was, uh, this may be irrelevant later, she just had a little Volkswagen bug. And she was described as a red-blooded girl who was no saint and who wore short skirts. And again, I'm just sort of pointing out what was talked about. The car lands hard on the passenger side, which would have probably shattered the glass and that, you know, Mary Jo's in the passenger side. She would have all of these uh, bruises and cuts and scrapes from bang, you know, going into the glass, going into the water. It flips in about 10 feet of water and it lands on the roof. It lands on the top. It's upside down. Now, this is a statement of state police detective Bernie Flynn. He says this. I figure we've got a drunk driver, Ted Kennedy. He's with this girl, and he has it in his mind to go down to the beach and make love to her. He's probably driving too fast, and he misses the curve and goes into Cemetery Road. He's backing up when he sees this guy in uniform coming towards him. That's panic for the average driver who's been drinking, but here's a United States senator about to get tagged for driving under the influence. He doesn't want to get caught with a girl in his car on a deserted road late at night with no license and driving drunk on top of it. In his mind, the most important thing is to get away from the situation. He doesn't wait around. He takes off down Dyke Road. He's probably looking in the rearview mirror to see if the cop is following him. He doesn't even see the bridge, and bingo, he goes off. He gets out of the car. She doesn't. The poor expletive doesn't know what to do. He's thinking, I want to get back to my house, to my friends, which is a common reaction. There are houses on Dyke Road he could have gone to to report the accident, but he doesn't want to. Because 
It's the same situation he was trying to get away from at the corner, which turned out to be minor compared to what happened later. Now, there's been an accident. The girl's probably dead. All the more reason not to go banging on someone's door in the middle of the night and admit what he was doing. He doesn't want to reveal himself. So there's some weird stuff about this story. I'll tell you straight up, man. So, according to Kennedy, he's driving. Mary Jo's in the passenger seat. The car smashes down on the passenger seat, ends up upside down. Now, Kennedy says he remembered groping for the door and, and the window, trying to open the window. But he has, And then he says, I have no idea how I got out of the car. Now, that's weird. If you've ever been in one, I've been in a car crash where um, the car flipped on a dirt road and landed on the roof. You remember everything. You remember everything. Now, if you get a head injury or something else happens, then you remember nothing. As lots of people are in these kinds of accidents, remember nothing. So you either remember everything or you remember nothing. That's the general pattern. But if you remember groping for the door handle, groping for the, to unroll the window, this is back when it was manual, and then you just have no idea how you got out of the car. Why? How is it possible you have no idea how you got out of the car? And that's weird, too, because Kennedy at the time was 37, 69, 220 pounds, six foot two tall. Mary Jo is like five foot four, like a buck ten, 110 pounds. She's like half his weight. So if he can get out of the window, he's got air, he's able to get out of the window. Why can't she get out of the window? The window was open when they pulled the car out. The idea that he could fit out the window. So if he can get out, why can't she? That to me is kind of strange. They, oh, well, he had the strength to open something and, and whatever, right? But then hold it open while she comes out. So Kennedy says he kind of came to or starts remembering when he's out of the car and then he sees he dove down to try and rescue her, but then gave up out of exhaustion. Now, there was a house just a little distance away, right up the street, had all the lights on. It's called the Dyke House. It's got a phone. Boom. You run up there. You say there's been an accident. You get the diver. You get the police. But he didn't do that. And that was important for reasons we'll get to in a sec. So instead, Ted Kennedy runs. Well, at one point he says runs. At one point he says walks back to the, the party, the house. And he gets the attention of his cousin, this other guy he knows. They're both lawyers. There was a guy there with expertise in, 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 as a fireman and so on. He would have been more helpful, but he gets the two lawyers. No one else noticed. No one else saw. No one else figured this out. And they run back to the bridge, and he kind of lies on the bridge while the two lawyers dive in and try and rescue Mary Jo Kopechny. It takes about 45 minutes or, or longer. Not one person is making a phone call, alerting the police, nothing like that. There's a big debate. They say, you got to go and report this. And he dives into the water and swims back to his hotel. And they go back to the party, you know, as you do. <sighs> Crazy people. This is like a, a window into hell itself, an amoral, will-to-power Nietzschean hellscape. Now, so according, th- th- there's always this weird thing. They say, well, we left at 11.15 to go and catch the ferry. But then the car is still on the island at 12.45 a.m. Now, all of this going back and forth and, and trying to rescue her twice and all that, the calculation, this takes at least two hours and 40 minutes to occur. 
Now, the hotel manager of Ted Kennedy's hotel in Edgartown saw and spoke with him at 2.25 a.m. So in order for the two hours and 40 minutes going backwards, the accident had to happen before 11.45 p.m. for all of what Ted Kennedy says happened to have happened. However, if the accident had to have happened before 11.45 p.m., how is it possible that the deputy sheriff saw Ted Kennedy's car on the island at 12.45 a.m.? There could not have been a second rescue attempt. And Ted Kennedy didn't talk about that at all. It just popped up in a speech he gave on television one week after the death of Mary Jo. As other little things, Ted Kennedy says he knew the time. He saw a time on a car clock. The rented car did not have a clock, which was figured out by um, reporters and so on. So, the upshot is that Mary Jo squats and sits and chokes in an upturned car in about 10 feet of water. Ted Kennedy finally gets around to reporting the incident almost 10 hours after he claims it occurred. Now, he didn't actually need to report anything because the car had been found by a fisherman hours earlier. The body had already been recovered. Mary Jo's body had already been recovered. So he didn't report anything. They already knew. He just made the phone call. Now, you know, why? Well, if he was drunk, right? This is from Richard McLaughlin, the Massachusetts Registrar of Motor Vehicles. <clears throat> Leaving the scene of an accident, delaying a report for more than nine hours for all practical purposes, forecloses a drunk driving charge. And I quote, it effectively deprives officers of evidence of chemical testing and direct observation of the operator. So if you wanted to avoid a drunk driving charge after an accident, that's how you do it, which is why, of course, there are laws against leaving the scene of an accident. In particular, Massachusetts at the time, the law against leaving the scene of an accident where there's been bodily harm was pretty severe, at least a minimum of two months in jail. So the fishermen see the overturned car when they go to the bridge to start fishing. They race to the nearest house. They make the phone call and a diver is brought in to go down. Now, the police chief comes, and while the diver's on his way, the police chief tries to go in, but there's quite a strong current, I think, so he's not a very good swimmer that way, so he can't get it sorted out. So the diver comes, goes in, and finds Mary Jo. Now, he says this. This is a testimony uh, at the inquest, the guy, the diver's name, John Farrar. He said... It looked as if she were holding herself up to get a last breath of air. It was a consciously assumed position. She didn't drown. She died of suffocation in her own air void. It took her at least three or four hours to die. I could have had her out of that car 25 minutes after I got the call. But he, Ted Kennedy, didn't call. Estimates are, that it took Mary Jo Kopechny at least three or four hours to die. And imagine, she was an only child. Imagine her parents knowing that that's how her child, through the selfish narcissism of one monstrous satyr, shuffled off this mortal coil, sucking in her own carbon dioxide until she, bulging eye, choked to death on a lack of oxygen. Just horrifying. Now, the body vanished. She was buried immediately, like a day after she died. Now, later, 
A district attorney wanted to exhume her body to figure out the cause of death. Seems kind of important, but his request was denied by a judge. So they couldn't figure out how Mary Jo died. Did she drown quickly or was she, did she suffocate to death? The indication seems to be that she suffocated to death. Her lungs were not full of water, it seems, and so on. So this is uh, absolutely horrifying stuff. And it, it may even get more complicated than that. But this is sort of the basis or the basics of all of this. And what Kennedy does is he says, oh, I didn't report the accident because I was in shock. Obviously a kind of a girly defense. And um, it, it doesn't at all accord with the facts. Why would shock have you not report the accident? It doesn't make any sense. And shock, you you know, you imagine the guy sort of wandering around dazed in circles or staring blankly at a wall or anything like that. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Because in the nine hours or ten hours it took for him to report the accident, what did he do? Well, he swam. He walked back to his hotel. He complained to the hotel manager about a party that he found too noisy. He took a shower. He had a nap. He woke up. He ordered newspapers. He went down. He had some breakfast. He spoke to a friend and two lawyers before finally calling the police. Now, based on a tip from a telephone company employee, the Manchester Union leader, which is a newspaper, reported that Ted Kennedy charged 17 long-distance telephone calls to his credit card during the hours he claimed to be in shock after the accident. Come on. If you're dazed, if you're in shock, you're not making 17 phone calls. You're not making sure that when you go back to the party, you want to get two lawyers. Why is that important? Well, because later, Ted Kennedy would use lawyer-client privilege to prevent Gargan and Markham, these two lawyers who went to try and rescue Mary Jo, he used the lawyer-client privilege to prevent them from giving any information to authorities. Hmm. I don't know how that works. As far as I understand, it doesn't really, lawyer-client privilege doesn't count if they know about criminal activity, which this would seem to be the case. (laughs) Everyone confuses Democrat privilege with white privilege. There's evidence that she could have lived. The, the, The trunk of the car was dry, which means the car was not completely waterlogged, and she had her her face jammed into the last pocket of air. And three three days, literally three days before this accident, the Chappaquiddick disaster, the Boston Herald Traveler ran a story about a New Hampshire woman who'd spent five hours in a submerged car. And she was given respiration, treated for immersion, an air bubble trapped inside the car had saved her life. Former state police detective Lieutenant George Killen, who was the head of a never-revealed investigation into the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, stated shortly before he died that Senator Kennedy, and I quote, killed that girl the same as if he put a gun to her head and pulled the trigger. Now, this shock and exhaustion defense, I was bewildered, I was dazed, I didn't know what was going on, I didn't even... He's, I think he said something like, well, I figured if I woke up in the morning, it would all have been not happened. And, but then what happened was, eventually he pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. But if you have this shock and exhaustion defense, but then you plead guilty to leaving the scene of an accident, then you have just destroyed the shock and exhaustion defense. Shock and exhaustion is like the insanity, temporary insanity defense. Then you don't plead guilty to anything. Oh, of course, no doctor ever gave him a shock 
diagnosis. There was a doctor who never examined him who they claim gave him a a diagnosis of a concussion, but then because he was prescribed sedatives, there was doubt about all of that. And in the movie, you can see the doctor says he's not allowed to examine him and so on. So, now there's an interesting, I put this out there because nobody knows for sure. I mean, you have the uh, the word of a Kennedy. and But there's this BBC Inside Story episode called Chappaquiddick that came out 25 years after Kopechny's death, and they put this other theory about what happened, which explains some stuff, maybe raises some other questions. I just put it out there for speculation's sake. It's interesting. So Kennedy's out there doing what he's doing with Mary Jo, and maybe they're looking for her panties or something like that, and then when he sees the patrol car, I mean, what are the odds, right? Off-duty policemen in a patrol car, then what happens is Kennedy got out of the car. So he probably turned to Mary Jo and said, I got to get out. You got to drive this car back. You got to, I can't be found with you. I can't be seen like this. I'm, I'm drunk. My license is expired. We can't find your panties. I mean, I got to get out of here. And then he gets out and Mary Jo gets into the driver's seat. Now she is short. The car is huge. And she's used to driving this little Volkswagen Beetle, I think she had. And she's less familiar, right? I mean, they're both fairly familiar. He more so, but she's less familiar. And she's, you know, full of adrenaline. Maybe she's looking in the rearview mirror. And she's not used to this big car. She's not used to it. And she, she just goes. And so he gets out of the car, turns the car over to Mary Jo. He swims across back to Town and goes to his hotel. And he doesn't even know that there's been an accident. Because she's just a short woman in a big car. There's no guardrail. She's driving straight. She breaks at the last minute. She goes over. She can't get out. And Ted Kennedy doesn't even know that there has been an accident. And this is why the next morning, the people who were chatting with him was like, oh, he's perfectly normal. He's jovial. He's genial. He's friendly. He's peppy, right? And, and people go, well, he's completely, he's a complete sociopath. They're like, but even for a sociopath, I'm sure it would be pretty tough to be totally normal. So then this idea is that when the two lawyers come over to him and say there's been this accident, that's the first time he hears about it. So then he rushes over, he gets him, and then, right? So this is just a possibility. Someone else says, I think it was, a, someone else, maybe the diver have said that he maybe jumped out of the car. And this would explain why he could never explain how he got out of the car, right? It would explain why he didn't report the accident because he didn't know about the accident. Again, I don't know. I'm just sort of putting it out there. It's quite interesting. And the other reason why that's somewhat believable is that the car, as I mentioned, landed hard on the passenger side. Now, if Mary Jo was in the driver's side, then she wouldn't have those injuries that would be with being in in the passenger side, which went into the water hard, high speed, you know, 35 miles an hour, boom. That's what explained why she wasn't hit with all of these spider lacerations from the safety glass and all of that. So again, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Now, (laughs) weird coincidence time. And I actually, I was three. I remember watching the moon landing on a really, really terrible, well, they were all terrible TVs back then. So this Chappaquiddick incident, disaster, whatever you want to call it, it took place on exactly the same weekend that... Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, were they all landing on the moon for the first time? Astounding. 
astounding. And everybody's glued to this, and this is all the headlines. And so the idea that such a world-changing event, such as landing on the moon for the first time, would occur at the same time as this Shabbat weekend, is quite astounding. And I think it only goes to show that it's actually easier to get a man on the moon than it is to indict a Kennedy. And it's funny because this is kind of an ultimate Me Too horror, right? That he's out there canoodling, I think, with a woman, well, almost 10 years younger. He's a married man. His wife is in bed because she's having a difficult pregnancy. And then she says the stress of Chappaquiddick ended the pregnancy. But this is like one of the early horrifying Me Too moments. And it's funny how the left worships this guy because the left is all about, well, the rich exploit the poor, the capitalist exploits the workers. And hello. So this is full of so many inconsistencies, right? So Kennedy says, well, we left the party at 11.15, and the accident happened just a few minutes later. But this deputy sheriff, his name is Huck Look, sounds like something out of a um, Mark Twain novel. So he says, 11.15 p.m. we left, accident happened a few minutes later, but this sheriff said, Kennedy's black Oldsmobile was right there in front of me at 12.45 a.m., heading down Dyke Road towards the bridge. Now, after the accident, the senator said, well, I couldn't rescue Mary Jo because the strong and murky current, I kept getting swept away. But there was no current at 11.15 p.m. The water was, like, totally slack, low tide. Now, 12.45 a.m., however, the current was fast-moving and strong, which indicates that it's closer to 12.45. So Kennedy said, I took a wrong turn without realizing it. I mean, we've all taken wrong turns. We don't end up in this situation. And the whole story rests on that claim, pretty much. But the road to the ferry... Now, Kennedy had already traveled that road several times that day. The road to the ferry was the only paved road on the entire island. So anyone who was driving from this rented cottage where the barbecue and party and sleepover with the unmarried women was being held would have felt the road kind of bank to the left. And you see this big, shiny left turn sign. And so the road banks that way towards the ferry. You have to deliberately crank the wheel to turn right towards the bridge. Dyke Road, unpaved, bumpy, and there are these bushes. Uh, The entrance is is obscured behind these bushes, so it kind of looks like you're just driving into bushes. It's a 90-degree turn. You can't just inadvertently do all of that kind of stuff. (sighs) Other question, why didn't he call for help to rescue Kopechny? Well, his argument, he was shock. He was in shock. He called his behavior, and I quote, irrational, indefensible, inexcusable, and inexplicable. <sighs> but if he's so much in shock, so traumatized, doesn't know what he's doing, why is he going back to the barbecue and fetching two close lawyer friends? Making these 17 long-distance phone calls that night to aides and advisors, He complains about this noisy party. He has a nap. He chats with a friend the next morning about boat races, orders two newspapers, and then meets again with these Gargan and Markham, these two lawyers, and then goes back to Chappaquiddick to call yet another lawyer from a payphone all before going to the police. How much alcohol had he drunk that night? How much alcohol had she drunk that night? I think her body was tested and there was alcohol in her system. The other thing, too, if Kennedy 
had exited the car and given the car over to Mary Jo, when she was drunk or under the influence, is he responsible for that as well? I don't know. (laughs) So if he and Kopechny did leave the party at 11.15 p.m., what were they doing until 12.45 a.m. when Deputy Look saw them drive towards Dyke Bridge? Just astonishing. Now, Kennedy later said that the only thing he was thinking about was, and I quote, the tragedy and loss of a very devoted friend. But the very next day, Kennedy summons 19 high-level political advisors to his house the very next day. So there was um, the sentencing, which we'll get to. There was a grand jury. There was an investigation. But the grand jury was actually threatened with jail and intimidated by a judge when it tried to look into the tragedy. The inquest was eventually held. Kennedy fought against all precedent to keep the proceedings of the inquest secret. And Farrer, the the diver who we heard from earlier, why was he barred from telling the inquest and the grand jury what he knew? (laughs) Kennedy is astonishing. He had the audacity. It's about five years after, right? Richard Nixon was pardoned after uh, all all of the stuff with the, the tapes. I got a whole presentation on Nixon, which you can look at if you like. Kennedy in 1974 asked this question. Do we operate under a system of equal justice under law, or is there one system for the average citizen and another for the high and mighty? Just astonishing. Now, there was a judge who was in charge of the inquest. His name was James A. Boyle, the Edgartown District Court. Now, he found, quote, probable cause end quote, to believe Kennedy had operated his car negligently and thereby, quote, contributed to the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. So January 1970, six months after the accident, there was this inquest into her death. And this inquest was kept secret at the request of Kennedy's uh, lawyers. So the judge found Kennedy negligent of unsafe driving and could have provi- this could have provided support for a possible charge of manslaughter. But the district attorney, uh, Edmund Dennis, chose not to press charges. Now, you know, this cost him the presidency, as they say, but he still had his big old political career. He was successfully reelected to the Senate seven more times. So in 1970, one year after Chappaquiddick, Kennedy was reelected by winning 62, 62% of the vote. So... If you're going to get charged with involuntary manslaughter, the police have got to establish that Kennedy did something illegal, like he was speeding or he was driving under the influence. But they couldn't really test him for alcohol because he didn't contact local police until 10 a.m. on the morning of July 19th, 1969. So they couldn't test his blood alcohol level and they had no other direct evidence of illegal activity. And so then, as I said, he pled guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident and received a two-month jail sentence, which was suspended. Which was suspended. And that's how justice parts before power. And there's a great line in the movie, which sums up modern postmodernism and leftism as a whole, and critical theory and Marxist subjectivism. Kennedy says, we'll tell the truth, or at least our version of the truth. Ah, you see. 
Give people free stuff. Give people free stuff. They'll let you get away with murder. Because, you know, he's, he's the channel. He's the portal by which free tax money flows to the population. <laughs> I mean, 99% of Americans, if they had gotten drunk, caused an accident, left the scene and not reported it, and left another person to die, they'd be rotting in a prison cell. But the Kennedys, of course, were outside the law. They were above the law. There was one instance in American history of an illegally stolen presidential election, John F. Kennedy, 1960. He, in all likelihood, lost the race to Nixon, but his father tried to steal the election for him by manipulating the vote tallies in Illinois. Of course, of course it's Illinois, and a couple of other places. The parents of Mary Jo Kopecky, I mean, what a heartbreaking situation. Heartbreaking situation. They told the Ladies Home Journal that their daughter did not die in vain because her death, and I quote, kept the senator from becoming president. And Ted Kennedy's legislative history was absolutely appalling. He was one of the key drivers behind the 1965 Immigration Act that opened up the gates of America to endless third world migration, the effects of which will be felt for hundreds of years to come. And he helped to lower the voting age because, of course, socialists want to lower the voting age because people are less likely to be working. Uh, He helped drive the uh, takeover of the government, um, uh, government takeover of the healthcare industry and He never worked a day in his life. Woke up every day filled with the conviction that his divine mission was to tell people to do what what they should do with their hard-earned money. (laughs) And if you want to compare and contrast, and we'll do another one. We'll do two. Let's do two. There's a compare and contrast. Number one, Ted Kennedy and Martha Stewart. Well, they're both from Massachusetts. Now, Martha Stewart made a phone call. Didn't kill anyone. Ted Kennedy kind of did. Martha Stewart... Well, she went to jail, but Democrat Ted Kennedy became the Lion of the Senate. That's what he was called, the Lion of the Senate. So let's do a comparison. August 16th, 2003. A man named William Janklow ran a stop sign and crashed into a young man who was riding a motorcycle. And he killed the young man whose name was Randy Scott. Now, William Janklow did not leave the scene of the accident did not wait 10 hours to report it, did not claim shock and disorientation. He ran a stop sign, hit the young man, stayed at the scene of the accident, and what happened? William Janklau was convicted of second-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 100 days in jail, followed by three years of probation, during which time he was not allowed to drive. Now, the victim's family uh, of this, the the motorcyclist, they filed suit for unspecified damages. The Gopechny family didn't. They got, I think, about under $100,000 at the time from Kennedy and his insurance company and so on, but they never did file suit. So why is this uh, important? William Janklau ran a stop sign, accidentally killed a young man, sentenced to 100 days in jail for second-degree manslaughter. Well... This Janklow had served as a governor of South Dakota, and at the time of this accident in 2003, he was a United States congressman. He resigned from his congressional seat two days before he was sentenced. 
Now, there's a motorcycle rights organization called Abate. They said the sentence should have included more jail time. But the court did not show preferential treatment to the congressman when they were sentencing him. The sentencing guidelines were followed right down to the letter. Unlike Ted Kennedy, William Janklau did the honorable thing and resigned his congressional seat. And I hate to put it this way. I hate to put it this way, but this is why the Republicans keep losing, because the, the leftists, the Democrats, are amoral Nietzschean power seekers. They are vampires after the dopamine of control over other human beings. And without the Kennedys, see, without the Kennedys, you don't get the Clintons. The Kennedys was like the trial balloon of how much people could get away with. How much can you get away with? Can you be at a party with six unmarried hot young things? Can you abandon your chauffeur? Can you drive down a dirt road? Can you plow into a, can you plow into a body of water, abandon her to die, to choke to death her own, own carbon dioxide while you go and complain about a noisy party and make a whole bunch of phone calls and don't report the incident until hours after she choked to death on her own asphyxiated exhalation, can you get away with it? And the answer is, well, yes, you can. If you're on the left, if you're a Democrat, if you're a Democrat. Everyone who was alive at the time, and the Clintons were, of course, Everyone who was alive at the time saw this lesson and said, wow, holy magic shield of invulnerability, Batman. I can do anything I want if I'm on the left. Because if you're on the left, then you're trying to get government to get bigger. You're trying to give people more goodies. And then they don't care about your ethics. The whole damn system is unethical. This forced redistribution of wealth. And this is why government power is so toxic. There are so many people in the world who would want this kind of power? No consequences, endless adoration, voted back in. Whether that power is because they were toothy fascist haircuts or, or whatever, I don't know. They were, they were handsome, they were charismatic, they were rich, they were powerful. And they gave massive amounts of goodies to people. Yay, I don't care where Tony Soprano gets his money, says his wife, I just want a new swimming pool. And this lawlessness, what can you get away with? This separation of the rule of law to the underlings and those on the left. Oh, it's led to the Clintons. It's led all the way further forward. Benghazi. Lie, deny, obfuscate. These are all trial balloons, you understand. These are all what can we get away with. And the answer is we can get away with a hell of a lot in particular circumstances. And this means that if you want to be above the law... Kennedy drove to the right, you take a hard left. And you will be uh, above the law, and people will not care the evil that you do as long as you continue to provide them the fruits of other people's labor, whether it's direct tax transfers from existing workers or it is the unborn whose non-existence binds you pillage before they even get formed into the existence post-twinkle in daddy's eye. But here's the thing. This is the thing. This is where I'm really split. I'm, tell me what you think. I mean, maybe I need your help with this. Tell me what you think. Like, I hope most of you, 
I look at the story and I say, God, that's horrible. This son of a bitch. Out drunk and diddling this impressionable young girl, bending her six ways from Sunday like some twister game from hell. Darting away from a cop who might catch him driving into the water. Lying. Delaying. Admit nothing. Apologize for nothing. Obfuscate everything. Show up with a neck brace that just is there for one day to try and gain sympathy. Admit no fault. Show no weakness. It works. It works. You say, ah, it's terrible. It's evil. It's monstrous. It's wrong. He left that girl to die. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. He lied. He obfuscated. He lawyered up. He admitted no fault. Other than in some general abstract, I can't believe I did it, right? And he was re-elected seven more times. He was central to the seat of power. He was lauded. He was praised. He was lionized, literally lionized. They called him the Lion of the Senate. So you got a fork in the road, right? you got a fork in the road. Literally, I guess in this case, you got a fork in the road. And this is the thing that's so messed up. My friends, help me. Help me. Because here's the thing. you got a fork in the road. You go one way, and you call. You're like, hey, man, i got to save this girl. I'm, I'm drunk. I've got an expired license. I was speeding. I may be having an affair. Whatever comes out, right? And you take your lumps. You go to prison. Your career gets destroyed. Or you cover up, you lie, you obfuscate, and you skate away. And you get seven more terms in the Senate. And everybody needs things from you, and you're a big man on campus, you're a powerful guy. It was a terrible, terrible thing. It was a bad man, terrible, bad. But we have a system where... Outside of a fear of hell, outside of a fear of divine punishment, how many people would choose jail over endless political power and praise? Did he do wrong? Sure. But did it succeed? Yes, undoubtedly. And then if somebody said to you, well, you can go to jail or you can go to the Senate. People will bow down before you and people will worship you and people will need things from you and you have positive reviews written about you and everybody will love you and the media will love you and defend you forever. Without God. It's just the will to power. And he succeeded. He won. While he was a bad man. But he won. Now, of course, if you think of him in hell, if you think of Ted Kennedy with no alleged date rapes to preside over and sitting there in your boxes, if you think of hell where he can't get a drink and there aren't any 16-year-old girls for him to proposition or waitresses to bend over backwards. 
well, then he didn't win, right? But in the absence of God, in the absence of divine morality, in the absence of divine punishment, who can say he didn't do the right thing for him, for his life, for his family, for his power? I mean, I have my own theory of ethics, but I can see the empirical evidence of how much power it's had in the world. If you take divinity, the ought, which you, which we find so hard to get from the is, the should, that we find so hard to extract from the bare bones of empiricism. If we take the eye of justice from the sky, if we take rewards and punishment from the equation. How was Ted Kennedy wrong? Sure, the girl died, but it was better for him that she died. You understand? It was better for him that she died because then he can say anything he wanted but no one to contradict him. <laughs> Witnesses get whacked for far less. It was better for him that she died. And it worked. It worked magnificently. He skated on to 62% of the vote. He seven more terms in the Senate. A life of power and privilege and respect. How did he lose? In a godless universe, in a universe of mammalian thirst for power and influence and control. Oh, but he was bad. But the finger-wagging does nothing. Nothing. Finger-wagging requires a conscience. And a conscience is a liability in a Darwinian universe of power lust, in a post-Nietzschean, post-moral world where it is about the accumulation of resources and it is about the accumulation of influence and it is about the gathering together of power to benefit you and your clan and your tribe and your genetics. He won! He won. He succeeded. He made the right choice in that universe empty of consequences. I mean, I'm really getting it. You got no God. You got no good. Why not just switch sides?